Section eleven of the Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter twenty six. The bottle of chloroform. Thalia Drummond was writing a letter when her visitor arrived, and of the many people whom Thalia expected to call, Millie McCroy was the last. The girl looked ill and tired, but she was not so far from human that she could not stand and admire the dainty drawing room into which Thalia showed her, her servant having gone home for the night. "'Why, this is a palace, kid,' she said, and regarded Thalia with reluctant admiration. "'You knew how to do it all right, better than poor Flush.' "'And how is the elegant Flush?' asked Thalia coolly. Millie McCroy's face darkened. "'See here,' she said roughly. I don't want any kind of talk about Flush in that tone, do you understand? He is where you ought to be. You were in it as well as him. Don't be silly. Take off your hat and sit down. Why, it's like old time seeing you, McCroy. The girl grumbled something under her breath, but accepted the invitation. It is about Flush I want to see you, she said. There's some talk of framing a murder charge against him, but you know he didn't commit any murder. "'I know? Why should I know?' asked Thalia. "'I didn't even know that he was in the house until I read the newspapers in the morning. How wonderfully clever they are on the press to get news so red-hot!' Millie McCroy had not come to discuss the enterprise of the press. She drove straight into her subject, which was, as Thalia had expected, Flush Barnett and his immediate prospects. "'Drummond, I'm not going to quarrel with you.' she said. "'I'm glad of that,' said Thalia. "'I can't exactly see what there is to quarrel about, anyway.' "'That may or may not be,' said Miss McCroy, ironically. "'The point is, what are you going to do for Flush? "'You know all these swells, and you're working for that swine, Yale,' she almost hissed. "'It was Yale who put Parr up to the Marisburg Place job. "'Parr hadn't got brains enough to think it out for himself.' Were you working with Yale all the time? Don't make me laugh, said Thalia scornfully. It's certainly true I'm working for Yale, if writing his letters and tidying his desk is work. But what swells are you talking about? And what can I do for Flush Barnett? You can go to Inspector Parr and tell him the old, old story, said McCroy. I've got it all worked out. You can say that Flush was sweet on you, saw you go into the house and followed and couldn't get out. "'What about my young reputation?' asked the girl coolly. "'No, Millie McCroy, you've got to think up something prettier. And anyway, I don't think they're making a charge for murder against him, from what Derek Yale said this morning.' She rose and walked slowly across the room, her hands clasped behind her. "'Besides, what interest have I in your young man? Why should I take the trouble of speaking for him?' "'I'll tell you why,' Miss McCroy rose, her hands on her hips, and glared at the girl. "'Because when the Brabazon case comes on, there's nothing to prevent me going into the box and saying a few plain words about what you did in the way of quick money-getting when you were Brab's secretary. Ah, that's made you jump, miss.' "'When the Brabazon case comes on,' said the girl slowly, "'why, have they caught Brabazon?' 
They pinched him tonight, answered the girl triumphantly. Parr did it. I was up at the police station making inquiries about some money that Flush left over for me when they brought him in. Brabazon a prisoner, said Thalia slowly. Poor old Brab. McCroy was watching her through her half-closed lids. She had never liked Thalia Drummond, and now she hated her. She feared her, too, for there was something sinister in her very coolness. Presently Thalia spoke. "'I'll do what I can for Flush Barnett,' she said. "'Not because I'm scared of your going into the box. That's the part of the police court where you'll be least at home, McCroy. But because the poor little wretch was innocent of the murder.' Miss McCroy swallowed something at this description of her lover. "'I'll talk to Yale in the morning. I can't be sure it will do any good, but I'll get a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him if he gives me a chance.' "'Thank you,' said Miss McCroy, a little more graciously, and proceeded to admire the flat in conventional language. Thalia showed her from room to room. "'What's this place?' "'The kitchen,' said Thalia but made no attempt to open the door. The girl looked at her suspiciously. "'Have you got a friend?' she asked, and before Thalia could stop her, she had opened the door and walked in. The kitchen was a small one and empty. The electric light was burning, was suggested to Miss McCroy that the girl had left the kitchen to answer her knock. Thalia could have smiled at the obvious disappointment on Millie McCroy's face, but her inclination to amusement departed as McCroy walked to the sink and picked up a bottle. "'What's this?' said she, and read the label. It was half filled with a colourless liquid, and Miss McCroy did not attempt to take out the stopper. The label told her all she wanted to know. "'Chloroform and ether,' she read, looking at the girl. "'Why have you been using chloroform?' Only for a second was Thalia taken aback, and then she laughed. "'Well, do you know, Millie McCroy?' she drawled. "'When I think of poor Flush Barnett in Brixton Jail, I have to sniff something to put him out of my mind.' McCroy banged down the bottle on the table with a snort. "'You're a bad lot, Thalia Drummond, and one of these days they'll be waking you at eight o'clock and ask you if you have any message for your friends.' "'And I shall reply,' said Thalia sweetly, Bury me next to Flush Barnett, the eminent crook. Miss Millie McCroy did not think of a suitable retort until she was in the Marleybone Road, and then it came to her with annoying force that, for all her interview, Thalia Drummond had promised nothing. Chapter 27 Mr. Parr's Mother Jack Beardmore had heard of Brabazon's arrest and went straight to police headquarters to see Mr. Parr. He found that excellent gentleman had gone home. "'If it is important, Mr. Beardmore,' said the police clerk on duty, "'you'll find him at home in his house at Stamford Avenue.' Beyond his natural interest in the Crimson Circle and all that pertained thereto, Jack had no particular wish to see the inspector, and Derek Yale had telephoned all that was known or could be told. "'Parr thinks this arrest may have an important development,' he said. No, I haven't seen Brabazon, but I accompany Parr tomorrow morning when he visits him. Yale, too, was apparently ungetable. He had hinted that he had a theatre party that night, and Jack bent his steps homeward. 
he had sent his car away for he felt he needed exercise to dissipate his energies and as he crossed the gloomy park taking a short cut to his house he found himself wondering what sort of a home life a man like parr could have he had never spoken about his family and his mode of living outside of the police headquarters was almost as much of a mystery as that which he was trying to unravel where was stamford avenue he wondered he had reached a deserted spot of the park when he thought he heard footsteps behind him and turned his head he was not a nervous type and ordinarily the sound of somebody walking in his rear would not have interested him sufficiently to make him turn the path here skirted a dense thicket of rhododendrons there was nobody in sight jack went on quickening his pace he heard no more footsteps but looking round he thought he saw a man walking on the grass by the side of the path as jack stopped he too halted he was doubtful as to what he should do to challenge the man might put him into an absurd position there was no reason in the world why any good citizen should not walk in the park at night or for the matter of that why they should not walk behind him anywhere at a respectable distance and then ahead of him he made out a slowly strolling figure and heard the unmistakable beat walk of a policeman to his own amazement he felt relieved and when he looked round the figure that had followed him had disappeared he tried to reconstruct his impression whoever his tracker had been he was smallly made at first jack had thought it was a boy perhaps some poor park beggar who was mustering up courage to approach him for the price of a night's bed it seemed absurd that he was glad to be out of the park and to step into the well-lighted street but it was the case he made an inquiry of a policeman stamford avenue sir that bus you see over there will take you or you can get there in a taxi in ten minutes Jack stood for a long time before he called the taxicab. Mr. Parr would rightly resent this intrusion into his domestic privacy, and really he had no excuse to offer. But, making up his mind of a sudden, he called a cab, and in a very short time was experiencing exactly the same doubts and misgivings before the door of Inspector Parr's maisonette. It was Parr himself who opened the door. His face was naturally free from expression, and he neither showed surprise nor annoyance at the arrival of his late visitor. "'Come in, Mr. Beardmore,' he said. "'I've just arrived, and I'm having supper. I suppose you've had your evening meal a long time ago?' "'Don't let me interrupt you, Mr. Parr. Only I was rather interested to hear that you'd caught Brabazon, and I thought I'd come along.' The inspector was showing him into the dining-room, when suddenly he stopped. "'Good Lord!' he said. Jack could only wonder what had startled him. Do you mind waiting here? For the first time since Jack had known the police officer, Parr was embarrassed. I must first tell an old aunt of mine who is staying here who you are, he said. She's not used to visitors. I'm a widower, you know, and my aunt keeps house for me. He entered the dining room hurriedly, closing the door behind him, and Jack felt something of his host's embarrassment. A minute, two minutes passed. He heard a hurried movement in the room, and Parr opened the door. "'Come in, sir.' His red face was even a deeper red. "'Sit you down, and please forgive me for keeping you waiting.' The room in which he found himself was well and tastefully furnished. 
Jack was annoyed with himself for expecting anything else. Mr. Parr's aunt was a faded lady with an absent manner, and she seemed to cause Mr. Parr a considerable amount of anxiety. He scarcely took his eyes from her as she moved about the room, and she hardly spoke before he jumped in to interrupt her, always politely, but always very definitely. The inspector's supper was set upon a tray. He had just about finished when Jack had knocked at the door. "'I hope you'll excuse our untidiness, Mr. Uh... "'Beardmore,' said Jack. "'She'll never remember it,' murmured the inspector. "'I can't keep the place as Mother kept it,' she said. "'Of course not, of course not, Auntie,' said Mr. Parr hurriedly. "'A little absent,' he murmured. "'Now, what did you want to know, Mr. Beardmore?' Jack laughingly excused himself for his call. "'The Crimson Circle is such a complicated business that I suspect every new agent to be the central figure.' he said. Do you think that the arrest of Brabazon was going to help us? I don't know, replied Parr slowly. There is just a chance that Brabazon will be a very big help indeed. By the way, I've put one of my own men to look after him, and I've given instructions that the jailer is not to go into the cell under any circumstances. You're thinking of Sibley, the sailor, who was poisoned? Parr nodded. Don't you think, Mr. Beardmore, that that was one of the greatest mysteries of all the mysterious Crimson Circle murders? He asked this question very soberly, but there was a little glint in his eye which Jack did not fail to notice. You're laughing. Why? I think it was mysterious, don't you? Very, said the inspector. In some respects, and the poisoning of Sibley will, to my mind, be a much more important factor in the eventual capture of the Crimson Circle than is the arrest of our friend Brabazon. "'I wish you wouldn't talk about crime and criminals,' said his aunt fretfully. "'Really, John, you're very trying. It may have suited Mother.' "'Yes, of course, Auntie. I'm sorry,' said Parr hurriedly, and when she had left the room, Jack Beardmore's curiosity got the better of his discretion." "'Mother seems to have been rather a paragon,' he smiled, and wondered if he had made a faux pas. The answering laugh reassured him. "'Yes, rather a paragon. She's not staying with us just now.' "'Is she your mother, Mr. Pa?' "'No, my grandmother,' said Mr. Pa, and Jack looked at him in astonishment. Chapter 28 A Shot in the Night the inspector must have been nearly fifty, and he made a rapid calculation as to the age of this wonderful grandmother who took an interest in crime and kept the house tidy. "'She must be a wonderful old lady,' he said, "'and I suppose she'd even be interested in the Crimson Circle.' "'Interested?' Mr. Parr laughed. "'If Mother was on the track of that gang with the same authority as I have, they would be high and dry in Cannon Street Police Station tonight. "'As it is?' He paused. They are not. All the time they were talking, Jack was puzzling his head as to why, in spite of its order, the room gave him an impression of untidiness. But he was not left to his own thoughts for very long, for Mr. Parr was in an unusually communicative mood. He even went so far as to tell Jack some of the unpleasant things said to him by the commissioner. Naturally, 
police headquarters are rather rattled by the continuance of these crimes, he said. We haven't had anything like this for fifty years. In fact, I don't think, since the Ripper murders, there has been such an orgy of destruction. It may interest you too, Mr. Beardmore, to know that the Crimson Circle, whoever he is, is the first real organizing criminal we've had to deal with for nearly fifty years. Criminal organizations are loose affairs, and as they depend for their safety upon that sense of honor which every thief is supposed to possess, but which I've never met with, the game doesn't last very long. The Crimson Circle, however, is a man who obviously trusts nobody. He cannot be betrayed because nobody is in a position to betray him. Even the minor members of the gang cannot betray one another, because it is just as clear to me that they do not know one another by name or by sight. He went on to discuss interesting cases in which he had been concerned, and it was nearly half-past eleven when Jack rose with a further apology. "'I'll take you to the front door. Your car is here, isn't it?' "'No,' said Jack. "'I came by taxi.' "'Hmm,' said the inspector. "'I thought I saw a car drawn up in front of the door. We are not a motor-car-owning neighbourhood. Probably it is a doctor's machine.' He opened the door, and as he said, a black car was drawn up at the curb. "'I seem to have seen that before,' said the inspector, and took a step forward. As he did so, a pencil of flame leapt from the dark interior of the car. There was a deafening report, and Inspector Parr fell into Jack's arms and slid to the ground. A second later, and the car was speeding up the street. It showed no light and vanished round the corner, as the doors in the street began to open and to let out the alarmed residents. A policeman came running along the pavement, and together they lifted the detective and carried him into the dining-room. Happily, the aunt had gone to bed, and had apparently heard and noticed nothing. Inspector Parr opened his eyes and blinked. "'That was a nasty one,' he said, with a wince of pain. He felt gingerly in his waistcoat, and brought out a flat piece of lead. "'I'm glad he didn't use an automatic,' he said. And then, seeing the blank amazement on Jack's face, he grinned. "'The Crimson Circle, gentlemen, is only one of three who wear a bulletproof waistcoat,' he said. I am the second, and, he paused, Thalia Drummond is the third, as I happen to know. He did not speak again for some time, and then he said to Jack, Will you telephone to Derek Yale? I think he's going to be considerably startled. The prophecy understated the case. Derek Yale arrived half an hour after the shooting in such haste that his appearance suggested that he had dressed over his pyjama suit. He listened to Parr's story, and then, "'I don't want to be uncomplimentary, Inspector,' he laughed. "'But you're the last person in the world I should have thought they would have wanted to shoot.' "'Thank you,' said Parr, who was gingerly fixing a lint pad over his bruised chest. "'I don't mean that as uncomplimentary. I merely mean that such a definite challenge to the police is the last thing in the world I expected them to deliver.' He frowned heavily. "'I don't understand it,' he said, as though speaking to himself." I wonder why she wanted to know. I'm talking about Thalia Drummond. She asked me this morning what was your address, he said. I understand your name is not even in the telephone book or in the local directory. What did you say? 
I gave her some evasive answer, but I've just remembered that my private address book is accessible, and she could easily have discovered it without troubling to ask me. I wonder she didn't. Jack gave a weary sigh. Really, Yale, you're not suggesting that Miss Drummond fired that shot, are you? Because if you are, it's a ridiculous suggestion. Oh, I know what you're going to say. She's a bad lot and has been guilty of all sorts of miserable little crimes. But that doesn't make her a murderess. You're quite right, replied Yale after a pause. I'm being unjust to the girl, and it doesn't seem that I'm starting fair if I'm sincere in my desire to give her a chance. I wanted to see you tonight, by the way, Pa. He took from his pocket a card and laid it on the table before the inspector. How does that strike you for nerve? When did you get it? It was waiting in the letterbox for me, but I didn't see it, curiously enough, until I was rushing out to find a taxi to bring me here. Isn't it colossal? The card bore a symbol familiar enough to the two men, but at the very sight of that crimson circle, Jack shuddered. Within the hoop was written, You are serving the losing side. Serve us instead, and you shall be rewarded tenfold. Continue your present work, and you die on the fourth of next month. That gives you about ten days, said Parr seriously, and it might have been the pain he had suffered, or excitement, but he seemed suddenly to lose his colour. Ten days, he muttered. Of course, I take not the slightest notice of that threat, said Derrick Yale cheerfully. I must confess that after my unpleasant experience at the office, I almost credit them with supernatural gifts. Ten days, repeated the detective. Have you made any plans? Ordinarily, where would you be on the fourth of next month? It is curious that you should ask that, said Yale. But I had arranged to go down to deal for some fishing. A friend of mine has lent me a motor launch, and I thought of spending the night in the channel. In fact, I had arranged to go on that day. You can make what arrangements you like, but you're not going alone, said Parr emphatically. And now you can all clear out. Thank your lucky stars that my aunt has not wakened, and that mother isn't here. The last he said was intended for Jack, and Jack smiled understandingly. End of section 11